So tonight we're going to jump right in. This is um, part one. We will conclude next Wednesday night uh, what, we're going to, what we're going to begin tonight. My, my goal was tonight, my intentions are tonight, to at the conclusion of our time together to give uh, a, a chance for some questions. Right? If you have some questions you want to ask. As long as you don't expect me to answer them, you're welcome to ask them. All right, so we want to allow time for maybe a, a couple of questions. If um, I can't answer them, I will simply use the great words I don't know. And but we will we will we will do we'll do what we can. But I, I want to encourage you. This is not a sermon per se. This is a teaching tonight. So it's a little different animal. So um, I hope you stay engaged, pay attention as we move along. What I believe is the perhaps one of the most important subjects in the entire Bible is how to live the Spirit-filled life. And that's the title. The Spirit-filled life. Fruits, gifts, and the goodness of God. I can tell you I have been excited about the opportunity to share this um, with all of us. In fact, we are uh, putting together a, a uh, class that's going to be ongoing, um, and hopefully everybody in the church will get, to, will get to take this. So let me begin by sharing with you three confessions, three confessions that we need to make as born-again Christians. And you're welcome to write these down on your sheet, or you can uh, follow along. Three basic confessions. The first one, I am saved. Can you make the confession? Who can say that? I am saved. All right. The second confession, I am being saved. I am being saved. And the third confession, I will be saved. That is the confession of every true born again believer. It's not just enough to say, I am saved. Thank God for that. But there's more to it than that. There's actually an I am being saved, and ultimately I will be saved. Within the context of these three confessions embodies our entire Christian journey from the moment we accepted Christ unto the end of no end, uh, unto the omega God out there, when we live in the ultimate state of having a perfect body being glorified. So how it looks, there's the finished work Another way to say this, right? The finished work, I am saved. Justification. Everybody say justification. That's a 10-ounce great theological word. That's what it is. I am saved. What God did for us in salvation, just as if we had never sinned. Justification. Aren't you glad for that? The moment you were born again, you were saved. Now when God looks at you, He does not see your sin just covered up. He doesn't even see sin. You are covered in the blood of Jesus. You are positionally right before Him. That's great news. We can all agree on that. Now the work begins. The ongoing work. Sanctification. Sanctification. That's the part we're in right now. The ongoing work. Sanctification. Number three, the final work. Glorification. Aren't you glad when you look at this flesh that hangs on your eternal soul that you're not going to live with this forever? Aren't you grateful for that? Every year I get a little bit older I realize I'm thankful my eternity is not going to be subject to this body. But God's got a brand new one in store for every one of us in this room. Isn't that great? No sickness, no pain, no sorrow, every tear He's going to wipe off of your eyes. Wow! Oh what a day of rejoicing that will be. The final work of salvation. I will be saved. 
Well, tonight we're going to home in on the ongoing work, the I am being saved. I am being saved. Sanctification. Now, by way of introduction, let me make a, just a few um, comments, okay? The goal is, for me at least, I don't want to answer questions no one is asking. Don't you can't stand being around people who are answering questions nobody's asking? That's, a, that's an awful place to be. I don't want to stand up here and, and answer a lot of questions no one is asking. But it's hard for me to know that, right? So probably you may not be asking some of these questions. You're going to be like, oh, this is really elementary common sense. But somebody else might be. So if some of this is very familiar to you, just say, you know, somebody else might need to hear this. But then something may hit you that they already know themselves. So we're going to, we're going to try to stay focused in on, on, on what God is saying. But some of this stuff may be new to you or it may not be new to you. And let me tell you why, all right? As we begin talking about the ongoing work of sanctification, the person, the presence, and the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, we find ourselves within the realm of Christianity. There are two different camps. They are, they are extreme camps as it relates to this subject. The first camp way over here is called cessationism. All right? Now, I'm not going to unpack cessationism for you. If you're interested in this topic, perhaps you come from a church background where this was taught. I encourage you to download the Transforming Truth app and listen to Pastor Jeff's message on spiritual gifts. He does a great job of showing you why cessationism isn't true. What is cessationism? It simply is a belief system that says this. All the gifts of the Spirit, all that we read about in the book of Acts was only for that particular time period. And at the death of the Apostle, or perhaps at the completion of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, that all those gifts went away. They are no more because we have the completed Bible. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God's Holy Word. Um, ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit in that manner in the book of Acts is no longer necessary anymore. If I'm a cessationist, I'm going to, I will teach it like this. Who remembers watching the space shuttles take off? Remember those? Do you remember those big um, rocket, rocket boosters that are, was on, on each side? And the purpose of those were to do what? Get it into the atmosphere. And once they, it, it cleared the atmosphere, what happened to those rocket boosters? They fell off because they were what? No longer necessary. So the purpose of, of, of Acts 2 and Pentecost and all this activity of the Holy Spirit was only to get us into the atmosphere. Now they fell away, so we don't need those things anymore. Now I can tell you for our purposes going forward tonight, I'm not going to spend any time debunking cessationism. If you are a true cessationist and you really believe that and you hold fast to that, I respect your belief, but I encourage you, please find another church because this is not the place for you. Amen? I say that in love, I say that in kindness, but it's just, it is a reality because you'll probably not fit here. You'll be very uncomfortable. There's another flavor of ice cream down the road, Baskin Robbins for you. I encourage you to move there quickly. Amen? I say that in love, I say that in kindness, but we don't want to spend a lot of time debunking that anymore because we, we hold fast to the belief that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is an Acts 29 and, it's still, and we're still living in it. Remember, Acts only has 28 chapters, so we're like living in Acts 29 right now. The book of Acts continues into the church age, and God is still doing what He's always doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is one dominant camp called cessationism. There's another camp over here. It's called classic, what I'll call tonight, classic Pentecostalism. All right? Some of us came up in, in uh, that facet, classic Pentecostalism. 
Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time in this camp. That was my tribe, what I came out of. And, and some of the problems with classic Pentecostalism is simply this. It's an it's a over-magnification of certain gifts of the Spirit to the exclusion of others and an encampment around one particular experience and not recognizing the ongoing experience and encounter of the Holy Spirit. Right? We get kind of wrapped up in certain things and we never move beyond that. Certain doctrines within classic Pentecostalism. Let me just tell you one that I personally disagree with and I have really ever since I have been born again. It simply says this, the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. That's part of the classical theological truths within Scripture. They teach that. Well, just like cessationism will teach us over here, that's an extreme view. I believe that is an extreme view as well, right? So I don't espouse that, okay? So we want to move away from the fringes, right? And 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 try to to come to God's word in humility, right? Humility and teachability and say, Lord, what are you really? wanting to say to us about the person of the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you, if you find yourself in one of these camps over here, or one of these camps over here, let me just encourage you to try to kind of put all that aside and the best of your ability, take the dry erase eraser and try to erase all that for a bit and say, Lord, maybe I don't have all the answers to this. Maybe there's some more things that you want to teach me. Now why do I say this? Because I have walked with Jesus for 32 years. 32 years ago, I experienced the I am saved. I got born again. One week later, one week later, I received an experience at 12 years old called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In that moment, God does something dramatic in my life, and I spoke in tongues at that moment in time. 32 years ago. Since that time, I have pursued the Lord, and I have read, and I have studied, and I got through high school, and I spent seven years in post-high school biblical education, spending years studying Hebrew, studying Greek, systematic theology, going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, tearing apart. After that, spending 20 years of full-time ministry consecutive. Now, I am not looking for any pats on the back. I'm just simply telling you all that to say to you, I know less now than I knew then. All right? That's how it works with God. The more we learn about Him, the larger He becomes, the more humble we become, and the more teachable we become. Right? When you're a thimble, and that's all you're holding, you may graduate to a, to a cup of, of your capacity for God. But as you graduate up, the more you begin to realize God's this ocean out there, and man, He gets bigger and bigger the more you, could, you, the more you get of Him. Make sense? So in this subject, I want to encourage you that we want to move to the center, away from paranoid cessationism, all right, and away from out-of-order charismania. Because I believe in each of these areas we get tripped up, and the body of Christ struggles. Right? From a paranoid view of cessationism, being afraid of the Holy Spirit, to the charismania side of things that just lets things get way out of order with no decency in order. Okay? So, I am going to take my 32 years of this, right? All my seven years of education and 20 years of active ministry, right? And I'm going to present to you tonight and next 
Wednesday in humility, what, what I believe is a, is a balanced approach to this, that we can know it theologically, we can know it experientially, and be grounded in God's Word, and not tend to go to the extremes. You see? It, it's very easy to end up in an extreme. We all tend to be extremists in our personalities. It, don't matter, it doesn't matter how straight the road you are traveling, if you're holding on to the steering wheel, if you let off of the steering wheel, what's going to happen to your car? It's going to do what? It's going to gravitate toward one side of the road or to the other. It's going to veer into oncoming traffic or it's going to veer into the ditch. Both two places that you really don't want to end up. Therefore, as we grow in the Lord, we want to keep our hands firmly on the wheel, don't we? And our understanding of the Word and our experience of the Spirit. And guess what? If we, if we, if we stay engaged mentally, spiritually, psychologically, we're going to stay in a good place, aren't we? If we just take our hands off the wheel, we're likely to end up in a ditch somewhere, and we call it a spiritual arrested development, right? We don't begin to grow in our, in our spiritual journey. So that's just a few disclaimers. I want to just share one more little disclaimer with you is this. Big one here, right? To avoid getting bogged down in semantics in the subject. Everybody say semantics. 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 We are not going to focus on the nuances of different words in the Scripture for the sake of this study, right? Specifically the words baptized, the words filled, the words in, the words with, and the words came on. These are different phrases that are used in our experiences with the Holy Spirit. Baptized, filled, in, with, came on. Some, some folks like to really argue their points based on the semantics and the usage of these particular words found in both Greek and Hebrew. Are you following me? So we are not going to get bogged down in these words, alright? But I will tell you tonight, my word choice tonight, what I am using out of this entree of words to describe our experience with the Holy Spirit is going to be the word baptism. Alright? Just send that out. Baptism. Now you, you might be thinking, why are you spending all this time? You're answering questions I'm not even asking. Well, just Humor me. We're, we're making a tape of this, so somebody might need it later. All right? I'm going to use baptism. Next week, I'm going to use a different word called filled. And it's going to make sense why I'm choosing to use these particular different words. Don't get bogged down in semantics. You know why? Let me share with you a scripture. It's not in your notes, but it's worth uh, writing this passage down to consult later. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Let me just read it into, into your hearing. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. We're going to move on. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You hear that? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If we single in on one letter or one word, we can stump ourselves and never be able to move forward. Jesus said His words are Spirit and they are life, right? So we're after what is the Holy Spirit saying through these particular words, and we don't want to get bogged down in it. Got it? All right. So let's begin tonight. Let's, let's, let's start the journey with this, with this ongoing work called sanctification. That's where we're going to camp for the remainder of tonight, and we'll complete um, next week. And I hope we'll, we'll find this um, incredibly 
beneficial um, intellectually, but also, even more importantly, experientially, which is what the Holy Spirit, who He is all about. So, sanctification, we'll get it from the word sanctify. There's a passage, not in your notes, but you can jot it down. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says the, that the Spirit has come to sanctify us, spirit, soul, and body. So, in this ongoing work of salvation, the Holy Spirit has come to sanctify us. Sanctify is just a real fancy word in Greek, hagiazo, which literally means to set apart for a holy purpose. Set apart for a holy purpose. I don't know about you, but you may have grew up in a home where certain things were set apart for a certain purpose. You didn't go to the drawer at home to get the good carving knife that mom used on the ham to take it outside and whittle your sticks, right? That knife was set apart for a particular purpose, and you didn't use it for anything but that purpose. That's what the process of sanctification is. It's setting us apart for a holy purpose for God. That's what He's doing inside of us. Now, where do we get this idea of this, this, this ongoing, continual work? Philippians 2.12, great verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Look at this. Work out your own salvation. Remember, see that? This is that I am being saved part. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is working in us by His Spirit. Now, in this passage, you see something here. You see my work and you see His work going on simultaneously. He says, work out your own salvation. That's something I'm doing, that's something you're doing. We are working it out, but it also says that God is working in us at the same time. So the process of God working in us is all hinged on our cooperation and yielding to what He is doing. If we are not cooperating and we're not yielding, guess what's not happening? God's not doing much work in your life. It requires cooperation. It requires yielding. It's an impossible thing to sit back and say, well, God, just do it. I'm not going to help you. Just take care of everything. That's not how God works. God desires us to be part of the process. We like to talk about that it's impossible to steer a parked car. It's impossible to steer a parked car, isn't it? What do you have to do? The car has to move. If the car is moving, then what can you do? Then we can you you got to do something. You got to you got to cooperate and begin moving. Even if you're moving in a bit the wrong direction, guess what can happen? You can be steered the right direction. But the point is, we got to move and we got to keep moving and work this out. Now, many think, perhaps you don't think this way, but some think this that the final words of Jesus before he left the planet were found in Matthew 28. Remember that passage? His final words. You've heard this preached before, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Remember that? Those are His final words. Can I tell you, those were not the final words of Jesus. If you've ever heard that preached or ever heard that taught, that was in error. Those were not the final words of Jesus. The final words of Jesus was not go, it was wait. Kind of directly opposite, isn't it? Not go, but wait. We find it in Luke 24, 49. Dr. Luke, the great physician. Dr. Luke was very careful of how he wrote things and recorded his gospel. They were companion gospels, if you will. Luke and Acts written together. We got John right in the middle, which kind of confuses us. But the best way to read it is Luke and Acts, because they are meant to be read together. 
He says, And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he said, Don't do anything, just, just wait, go get filled. This is also repeated again in Acts 1 and verse 4. After Jesus was resurrected, before he ascended, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to what? Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus' final instructions was to wait. Wait for what? The promise. What promise? The baptism in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told His disciples to wait before they go change the world. So don't go change the world yet. You need to wait because you're not going to be able to change the world until you're, you're fixing to get something that you're really going to need. You're fixing to get the Holy Spirit whom I am sending. He was telling them, don't try to do anything I've instructed you. That I spent the last three years instructing you, don't try to do any of this until you've received this additional baptism. Again, I remind us I'm using the word baptism tonight. You will only be striving in your own natural ability. Nothing of lasting spiritual value will really be accomplished. He says, wait, wait for what I have promised. I have promised you a helper. We know Him as the Holy Spirit. If you've been born again, let me just make one statement here. If you have been born again, you say, I am saved. Guess what? The Holy Spirit baptized you into Jesus at the moment you were saved. Now, I'm going to repeat this a lot tonight because our cessationist friends will come and they'll say, listen, hold on a minute, we've already got the Holy Spirit. How can we get whom we already have? Let me just be clear. Let me be clear. You already have the Holy Spirit, the moment you are born again. And this is going to make sense to you as we begin to move through tonight. But let me ask you, have you asked Jesus to baptize you in the Holy Spirit? Don't answer the question yet, but think about it. Have you ever asked Jesus to baptize you in the Holy Spirit? As we move through this tonight, you may find out you have, you may find out you haven't. Okay? So we're going to talk about the three baptisms the three baptisms that Scripture teaches us about throughout the Old Testament and much type and shadow in the Old Testament, much more unveiled revelation throughout the New Testament through the words of Jesus and the apostles and the, and the unveiling of this throughout the book of Acts. Hebrews 6, verse 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ... Let us go on to perfection. Let's stop there for a second. In other words, we need to leave behind romper room. We need to leave behind and move toward perfection. Perfection there simply means move toward maturity. In other words, we need to grow up. So, let's leave the discussion of all the elementary stuff. By now, you really should have your alphabet down. You should know A-E-I-O-U. You, you, know, you should get these kind of things now. Let's begin to move forward toward maturity. And now he begins to list these six things that he says are elementary teachings. I dare say for many of us, this is not elementary. This is like major stuff. But he's saying these are, these are just like the basics here. This is the ABCs and one, two, threes. He says, number one, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms. Emphasis on S. 
baptisms. Some of your versions may say washings or cleansings. The Greek word there is baptismo, which is an actual translation of the word baptisms, right? Everybody say, baptisms are so important. Baptisms. Baptisms of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Look at verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. If God permits. I was thinking about that. I'm not sure if you've ever built a house or built a building in a, in a county that has a lot of strict codes and regulations. Anybody ever built something before that you have to involve the county? You got to go get plans drawn up. They have to approve the plans, and then you can commence with the with the building. And maybe you remember getting in every stage. What has to happen? Inspectors have to come out, don't they? Inspectors come out. Now, perhaps you're building the foundation. They come in, they pour the foundation, everything looks right. Before you can even begin framing or anything, what do you have to do? Mr. Inspector, would you come out and inspect? And the inspector comes out. You may be there, you may not be there, but you've got a nice little post in front of your little project that has a little card on it. And it's a place that he, if he comes out and he sees the foundation was done correctly, he's going to go over there and perhaps with a green marker or a green tag, sign off and say, this foundation is good, you can move forward. That's exciting if you're a builder, you know what I'm talking about. It's nice to get green tags. It's not so nice when you come back, you see that nice little card up there, and there's a red tag on it, because they found problems with the foundation. Where am I going with this? Because sometimes we never move forward in our journey with God, because God just won't permit it. He throws down a red tag. He said, you don't have these six things down. You're not ready to move beyond the elementary teachings. He throws down a red tag. So some of us wonder, why aren't we growing? Why are we still suffering? Why are we taking these trips around Mount Sinai over and over and over again? But God said, listen, I'm red tagging you. Can't move forward. Framers can't come until you get this right. And one of the six things he said you got to get right is baptisms. Get this right. And when you get that right, then I'll green card you. And then you can move on to maturity. God will not let us fail in the elementary stuff. He wants us to get that down. You notice baptisms are plural. Many Christians are unfamiliar with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In fact, most believers only know about only one kind of baptism, which is what? Water baptism. If I tell you about water baptism, it's the first thing you think about. We did it last Sunday. Water baptism. We can easily deal with this because we see it so clearly in Scripture when we're seeing John the Baptist by the Jordan River. What is he doing? He's baptizing people where? In water. Is he sprinkling them? No. He is like putting them in the water, baptizing people. John baptizes Jesus in the water. We see it. We attend a church where you see it, so it's easy to connect with water baptisms. But still the Bible mentions two more baptisms you really can't see with your physical eyes. You can only see the after effects of these two baptisms in their personal lives. You see. One you can see, the other you have to see with your spiritual eyes in a person's life when you begin to see the fruit. Are you ready? Let's explore for a few moments all three of these baptisms and what the Bible is saying about each one of them. We're going to focus primarily on the last one. The first one, again, let's not get lost in semantics, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now you probably already know about this baptism. You just may not know it by this particular name. We call it salvation. 
right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is another way to describe salvation. You got it? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all what? Baptized into what? One body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the baptism into salvation. Who is doing the baptism in 1 Corinthians 12 here? Who's, who's doing it? Who baptizes us into salvation? The Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes us into salvation. He is intimately involved in your salvation experience, you see. People are drawn to God by the Spirit of God, aren't they? No man comes to the Father except who draws Him? The Spirit drawing Him. So the Spirit draws you, the Spirit convicts you, the Spirit baptizes you. The Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's involved in your salvation. Jesus described this a little bit to Nicodemus in John 3. Again, not in your notes, but you can make note of it. John 3 and verse 5, Jesus answered, and He's told this to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So immediately Nicodemus is pointing, is being pointed by Jesus to salvation, and it's the Holy Spirit the one is doing it. The Holy Spirit is the person who did the baptism. This is the baptism being referred to in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. You want to maybe check this verse down and write it later. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Everybody say one baptism. Now, at a superficial look, you may say, well, that seems to be in contradiction to um, Hebrews chapter 6. It said baptisms. Now it says one baptism. But what's being described here is salvation. It also says one God, but how does God manifest Himself? Three different ways, too, right? There is a oneness to the Spirit, just like there's a oneness into the Trinity. We're talking about the Spirit baptizes us into salvation, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the second one, as we already talked about, is simple but powerful. Water baptism. Now, if we choose to be obedient to Scripture, which I hope we all do, we choose to experience a second baptism. This one is in water. This one is in water. This is the type of baptism that Jesus had in mind when He said in Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is water baptism. It symbolizes our new life in Christ. But can I just tell you something? I believe it maybe is a little bit more than symbolic. I do believe something really special happens when you are baptized in water. It's something that you should not forego, you should not put off. Do I believe it's, a, it's, it's essential to being saved? That if you don't get water baptized, you're not going to get into heaven. I do not believe that. I believe that's done on the finished work of Christ. It's not done on the outward act of water baptism, but I encourage you, if you've not been baptized in water, to be baptized in water. Let me just also say here as well, this is not necessarily order, order in sequence. Two and three can be flip-flopped. I was baptized by the Holy Spirit unto salvation. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then later on, I was baptized in water. So two and three 
It doesn't always have to be in order. Number three, and where we will camp uh, most of the time tonight and next week, the fun. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. John's talking. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John's statement here is just one of a handful of statements or accounts present in all four Gospels. You may want to write this down. You can find the exact same thing said, not only in Matthew, but also in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, Luke 3.16, and John 1.33. Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33. You'll find it across the board in all the Gospels, because all the Gospels don't have all the information that all of them have. But things that is repeated across the board in, in every gospel are things that maybe we should pay even a little closer attention to because they're there for emphasis. You will also find accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus in all four of the gospels. As these events are obviously central to our faith, I believe it's significant that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is predicted in all four gospels as well. You tracking? Scripture clearly shows us Jesus is the one who performs this baptism. John says, the Holy Spirit baptized us into salvation. Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Yet because this baptism sadly has been harmfully misrepresented, countless Christians avoid it. I alluded to you earlier uh, some of the um, extremes within classic Pentecostalism or charismania. Unfortunately, you can just YouTube some things and watch a little bit of Christian television and get, your, get all full of some of the abuses that are out there. But I don't know about you, but when I gave my babies a bath, I didn't throw the baby out when I dumped the water out. Did you do that? Hence, we get the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Wouldn't that be ludicrous? Giving my little son Matthew a nice bath and a nice little tub, and I just take him out there and throw him in the bathwater just out in the yard. We're not going to do that, right? Because we're all too smart here to do that. We would never do something so stupid. So just because other people have done extreme things and dumb things and didn't interpret Scripture correctly doesn't mean I'm going to run way over here to the other side. It means I may need to be able to get rid of some bathwater because there's something precious in it. It's the promise of the Father. It's the, it's the person of the Holy Spirit. How could Jesus baptizing us in the Holy Spirit be a bad thing? I'm just curious. How in the world could that be a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. I think Jesus baptizing me in the Holy Spirit is a wonderful thing. It's not a bad thing. Especially when it's so plainly and so evident and present throughout Scripture. And we're going to go right there right now. We're going to see this thing taking place throughout Scripture. Let's start off where you might expect to start off is now in the book of Acts. Peter's Pentecost sermon, the PPS. Peter's Pentecost sermon. This promise of the baptism in the Holy Spirit came powerfully to the disciples. We know this in Acts chapter 2. And after this experience, Peter gets up and boldly begins to deliver a sermon immediately after this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of what? Pentecost. Penta, we get 50 from that. 50 days after Passover. That's what Pentecost means. 50 days after Passover is when this happened. So in response to Peter's fantastic sermon recorded in Acts 2, a number of the Jewish 
listeners fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful verse here, especially for those who are preachers of the gospel. You're wanting these things to happen. Acts 2.37. It says, Now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Isn't that a great question? Now that's a question I want to answer. What shall we do? Somebody asks you that question, oh baby, we got the answer. When somebody comes to you in their life and they're going through difficult times, marital hardship, financial hardship, and they come to you and say, what shall we do? Guess what? You should be able to tell them. I can tell you. Because it's always easier to answer a question somebody's asking than answering a question somebody's not asking. When somebody asks you a question, get ready to give an answer to the hope that you have when the question is asked. Look at this. Acts 2.37. This is what goes on. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter gives this response down in verse number 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, everybody say receive, receive, this is a really important word, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So Peter here outlines these three baptisms. Again, semantics changes a little bit, but truth is being presented with different words, but same thing going on. He says first, he's answering the question, the first thing they got to do is what? Repent. This is vital, primary step unto the baptism of salvation. You must repent and believe. First thing you got to do. Number two, it says you got to be baptized. Be baptized. Peter urges his listeners to follow Jesus' example by submitting themselves to water baptism. Be baptized. And number three, what does he say? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the third baptism, as Peter indicates here. The Holy Spirit will not force Himself upon anyone. He must be received. Again, we don't want to get lost in semantics, but no, received does not imply you do not already have the Holy Spirit. It simply means there's a greater work the Holy Spirit desires to do in you that must be received as an act and choice of your will in working out your own salvation, in cooperating and yielding to the Holy Spirit. That's what received means. We'll get to more of that later. From here on out, the third baptism continually follows the first two as an essential, critical part of the Christian life. Jesus even modeled this for us at His baptism, didn't He? We have the Word standing in the river and the Holy Spirit coming upon Him, don't we? Those three things interacting with each other. We have Jesus saved by the blood because it's His blood, isn't it, flowing through His veins, standing there as the, as the loved of God, standing there being water baptized, and then the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. Why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Because the Word teaches us Jesus set aside the divine nature. What was the divine nature? Holy Spirit. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to empower Him to endure all the temptations and to be able to live a sinless life. You think if Jesus needs the Holy Spirit, don't you think we do? We need for the Holy Spirit to descend upon us. Now, who are these three baptisms for? I love this. Peter says you've got to repent, you've got to be baptized in water, and you've got to receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, who is this promise for? Was it only for the people, who, who only the apostles? 
No, you know what he says? He says, he says this, this is for you. This is only for you. This is for your children. Not just your children, but for all who are far off. Can I tell you that all who are far off is prophetically talking about me. I'm embedded right there. He is prophetically talking about me far off down in the future. In other words, this gift of God, repentance, water baptism, baptism is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. So Peter gives this great sermon. He gives us tremendous information. 3,000 people are, are added to the church that day. They're experiencing all this in great power. And now, now we're seeing this building momentum and clarification of the role of the Holy Spirit being greatly defined throughout the Old Testament. It began with types and shadows in the Old Testament. And as always, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Therefore, the New Testament is bringing Old Testament reality to us. Because when we read the Old Testament, we do so through the lens of a new, a, a new covenant understanding. And then we see blood and we see water and we see Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. It's amazing what God was foreshadowing and forecasting what was to come. Now we see it going into full motion in the book of Acts. All right, Peter gives his sermon in Pentecost. The next thing we see great joy breaking out in Samaria. Would you like joy? In Acts 8, we find the evangelist Philip preaching and teaching in Samaria. By the way, Philip didn't want to leave probably Jerusalem. Persecution broke out and he had to leave. After a revival breaks out, many people are healed, delivered from demonic oppression, and they are saved. Look at Acts 8.12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So you see, two of the three baptisms are found right here in this verse by itself. It says they believed, and they were what? Water baptized. They believe means the people received the baptism unto salvation, then were baptized in water. All right, two down. One to go. What about the third baptism? The immersion in the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. Acts 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard, they're getting word, right? Like the Pony Express probably. They heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive, who? The Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice what this passage doesn't say. It doesn't tell us that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter to John to give them a big bear hug and welcome them to the body of Christ. Give them the right hand of fellowship. Give them the membership card. Here's your get out of hell card free. Carry it in your wallet. Now for many of us, we were told that once saved and water baptized, we were given a Bible and said, now you're fine. We were never brought to this third oh so important thing. Now of course many of us in this room tonight, we know that without receiving this third part, we live a powerless and a defeated life with minimal effectiveness in God's kingdom. We've experienced this thing, this, this, this experience I had one week after my baptism unto salvation. I experienced this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Peter and John didn't dare do that, right? They didn't do that disservice to the believers in Samaria. They were happy these folks had received salvation, but the first things the disciples 
ask was whether or not the new believers had received the third one. It was a priority that they needed the third baptism in the Spirit. When the answer came back no, the apostles immediately addressed the situation, didn't they? They went, Acts 8, 17 says, then they laid their hands on them and they what? Received the Holy Spirit. Now I've heard people argue that the baptism of the Holy Spirit only occurred on the day of Pentecost. Yet these events in Samaria occurred months or even perhaps years after Acts chapter 2. We don't know the time frame, but we know time had passed. And this isn't the last time we see Scripture experiencing three baptisms either. Now, I'm not even going to talk about Acts chapter 10 tonight, but I hope you'll write it down and go home and read about Acts chapter 10 and what Peter gets involved with with Cornelius. And read about that experience. No time for that tonight. Check it out on your own. You have a Bible. Read it. All right. Next one. The pattern continues in Ephesus. The pattern continues in Ephesus. Many years after Pentecost outpouring, we hear about the Apostle Paul's ministry in this town called Ephesus. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now let's unpackage this context a bit, right? Interestingly, the people Paul encountered were disciples who already believed, meaning they were followers of Jesus Christ. Now notice Paul's question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Let me ask you something. Do you think the Apostle Paul was a solid biblical scholar? Do you realize Paul wrote a third of the New Testament? That's a lot more than you did. And that's a lot more than I did. He wrote a third. He was a solid biblical scholar. In this question we find Paul doesn't seem to have any doubt in his mind that someone can come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ yet not receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Fully convinced of that. That's why he asked to be sure. In other words, Paul knows that a person can be baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ's salvation, yet not be baptized by Jesus into the Holy Spirit. And he's drawing a distinction in this passage. Now maybe these people went to the same church I attended when I was little. Someone told them enough about Jesus so they could be saved, but they had never even really heard of the Holy Spirit. We talked about God the Son. God the Father, and, you know, what's His name? The Holy Spirit. Sadly, many have come up just like that. Paul found this situation so puzzling that he decided to check and make sure these people were actually even saved. Right? Acts 19.3, and he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Remember John's baptism from your Bibles? John's baptism was one of repentance. When they said into John's baptism, Paul explained they were missing a few components here. Acts 19.4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now look what Paul does. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
So he, he, he baptized them in water unto salvation. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Again, we see the pattern again. We see repentance. We see salvation right happening right there. Then we see the baptism in water, and then we see this baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we see the effects. Notice what happens when the Ephesian believers receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They spoke with tongues, and they prophesied. We see this pattern again and again throughout the book of Acts. You really can't really argue with it. We see it in Acts 2. We see it in Acts 8. We see it in Acts 10. We see it in Acts 19. And I saw it 32 years ago sitting on an ugly white vinyl couch in somebody's house. And he continues doing what he always does. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lastly, three witnesses in heaven and on earth. Three witnesses in heaven and on earth. 1 John 5, 6 through 8. Just so you know, Jeff asked me to go a little longer tonight because he's preaching to the high school and middle school students. So I'm going I'm to oblige him if it's okay. 1 John 5, 6 through 8. This is he who came. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three, everybody say three. There are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. You see? Three. Spirit, water, blood. And these three agree. In essence, we have the three baptisms in reverse order here. These three witnesses on earth are the Holy Spirit baptism, the water baptism, and salvation through the blood of Jesus. Each one of these baptisms represents a distinct work of grace God wants to do in our hearts and our lives. Salvation by the Spirit is a miraculous work of grace upon the heart. Water baptism is a work of grace as well upon, upon man as symbolism. And then believer's baptism in the Holy Spirit releases within us the supernatural empowerment to do all that God calls us to do. And this pattern of three is repeated all throughout the Bible. As we have seen, just even, even tonight, Jesus commanded His disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit came. Why? Because. Let me just share with you three quick passages. Let me tell you why. Because, in Jesus' own words, Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are what? Clothed with power from on high. How many of you tonight feel like you've been clothed with power from on high? Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Powerful passage. Witness, you know this comes from the Greek word martos, which we get the word what? Martyr. It means that the Holy Spirit does something so profoundly in your life that you're willing to truly lose your life for the sake of the gospel. That's what, that's, what, that's what the Spirit of God does in you. In other words, He moves so powerfully in you, you will lay down your life for your friend or anybody because this is what the Holy Spirit's doing. You're willing to be a martyr for Him.
Sometimes it is a death where your head's cut off, or it could be a living death where you die daily to yourself and let the Holy Spirit have His way. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. John 14, 12. True, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to my Father. So it gives us three important phrases here. One, clothed with power. Second one, be my witnesses, and greater works. Do you see that? Clothed with power, be my witnesses, greater works. That's the purpose of the third baptism in the Spirit, that we'd be clothed in power, that we'd be effective witnesses, and we would do even greater works than Jesus did. All right? Now we're going to conclude that tonight. Next time, we're going to move into Ephesians 5 and then talk about after this third baptism. Now, this is where some of our classical Pentecostalism friends that I alluded to earlier, they, they, will, they will camp right on this one experience right here, right? And they never move beyond it. When the Bible clearly teaches us in Ephesians 5 that this may move us forward, but then there are continued fillings of the Holy Spirit that should mark the life of the believer. It doesn't just have happened way back there, but it conti He continues to fill us as we surrender to Him. Wow! That was a lot, wasn't it? That was a lot. So let's, um, let's take about uh, five or ten minutes, and um, I'll let you ask um, any, any questions. John, would you help me with the uh, mic? Because we want to record these as well. Um, so don't feel bad. We're not, if, it's, if you say something bad, we'll, we'll, edit, you, we'll edit you out. But um, does um, anybody have any questions? Now, again, um, I'm, I'll try to answer them. If, if I can, I'll try to get answers to you. But if you have any questions about this, anybody, real quick, we'll, we'll get a mic to you. Right there, Ben. Oh, but, Right there. There's some people that feel that if they're not baptized in Jesus, yes, they 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 differentiate between uh, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, yes. and Holy Ghost, and being baptized in Jesus. Yes. So could you shed a little? I can. On that? I can try on that. Yes. Okay. Uh, there is a, a stream of Christianity uh, that was birthed out something called Sabellianism, which has to do with oneness, non-Trinitarian Christians. Uh, they don't believe in the Trinity. They are Jesus only. They will latch on to um, Acts 2.38, I believe this is, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, right? So therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is really not adequate. You should only be baptized in the name of Jesus. I actually went to a church with um, a person like this, and when I baptized her, she wanted to be baptized again for some reason, she wanted to make sure I baptized her, and I said, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Because she was taught somewhere on the way, unless she was baptized in the name of Jesus, it just doesn't stick. Like a post-it note that gets caught in the wind, it's just not going to, it's just, it's just not going to stick. But yes, that particular belief system oftentimes emerges from a non-Trinitarian belief system. They believe Jesus only. Jesus was Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus was obviously Jesus Himself on earth. And Jesus is also the Holy Spirit, just reveals Himself in different ways. Personally, again, we kind of get into a semantics arg argument there. You know, we're saved by Jesus. And who can explain the Trinity? I can't explain it. But yes, to answer your question, Briefly, that's kind of that's kind of anybody else. Ben, you got a question? Yeah, I, I mean, I believe in what you said. Do you believe you can lose any one of the three or all three and lose your salvation? 
Oh, that's the $3 question, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> My goodness. You were waiting on that one. That's a, that is a loaded question right there. All right. Now I'm going to show you how I, I tip to be a little reformed. It is my belief, right? My belief, when it says, I am saved, I believe that is a finished work in the life of the believer accomplished by Jesus Christ and done. A person who is authentically born again and had a born again experience, right? Because it's not based on their works, but on the work of Jesus in their life cannot lose their salvation. Now some of you are thinking, oh dear God, they just, they just shattered me. Well, shoot me, shoot me later, right? But ultimately, in, in my understanding of Scripture, I am forced to land in that position. However, there are some unsettling Scriptures found in um, Hebrews 6 and also Hebrews chapter 10 that are also a bit problematic even with that doctrine, right? But I do believe, based on other passages of Scripture, that once a person is born again, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the foundation that Christ lays in one's life, at the judgment seat of Christ, the fire is going to come. It's going to try all man's work. Gold, silver, bronze will be left, wood and hay. But those that have no gold, no silver, no bronze, all wood and hay, it says they will still get in based upon the foundation that Christ laid in their life. The beautiful thing about the grace of God is the very thing that it can be abused so much. The thing that makes grace so amazing is the very thing that makes grace so easy to be abused. Anyway, um, I have brothers in, um, in ministry that we will line up on different positions on that, but I have to, I have to, I have to come down on that one. Next, any other questions? Good. Follow up? Do you think you can lose the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Okay, so... Baptism of no, because baptism of brings you into salvation. Would you, you, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Okay, baptism. baptism in the Holy Spirit, well, I believe we leak. Okay. All right. Yes, absolutely. I believe we are, we are punctured with holes, and we live in a world where we are trying to be conformed to the world, and we do leak. Hence, as we're going to get into next week, we're going to see where these ongoing fillings of the Holy Spirit are so vital in our life. Some of the most mean bitter Christians I have ever met in my entire life are people who can cite an experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. Because somehow along the way, they did not continue to be filled. Mario. Hey, hold your question for a second because we, we want to um, get, it on the, get it on tape. These are good. Great questions. Thank you. So, uh, um, on that third baptism, basically... It's, it's actually a, a new conversation for me. Uh, w when I was born again and I did the water baptism, I did, I, I accepted Jesus before I did the baptism. So we went, you know, step one, step two. Yeah. I always felt that, uh, I guess the third baptism is just continuous. It's, it's just not that, I guess it's what you're saying. Because uh, one, one of my arguments at first because we all have arguments before we, you know, decide, mm -hmm. uh, especially if we were raised in a different way, um, was always a fact of, well, you know, if, if I'm okay, I could do anything I want. Yeah. You know, if I'm saved, I could do anything I want. You know, so where's the, and the way it was explained to me was the Holy Spirit, and I, and I believed it, and I feel it, and I truly believe that the Holy Spirit, once you've been saved, once you've Accepted, accepted Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit doesn't allow you. I mean, something inside of you tells you it's wrong. That mm -hmm. is the Holy Spirit. So is that not that third baptism or part of that third baptism? Yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It is the, it is the intensification of the work of God in your life. Like we um, read earlier, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is God who works in you to accomplish His purposes. So part of this experience of, of the Holy Spirit, and, and we're going to see this next week in much greater detail, as we begin to realize we're, we're not talking about some nebulous force. We're, we're, we're talking about a, a person and not a force. Sometimes we have a problem talking about this third experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because we want to introduce a formula to it or some algorithm on this is how it works. We're not talking about an it, we're talking about a, a he. This is, this is He who is, within, who is within us. And ultimately, we're not getting any more of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, He is getting more of us. See, that's really what's going on here, right? There's the moment in time after salvation where we somehow have this experience, I believe, we get born again. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. And then the next experience simply says this, Lord, I don't want you just in the foyer. Lord, I want... I, I want you throughout my entire house. Lord, baptize me, fill me, immerse me. And then we had this incredible experience. And I, I, I won't say the word experience because, I mean, experience is important. I experience my wife. I love her. I experience her. I don't just know her from afar because of a textbook. I experience her. The Holy Spirit is a person. We experience Him as we come into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But you see the danger, don't you? You see the danger in only being baptized into salvation water baptism, and never really come into this third experience which really launches you out to be, to walk in a righteous way. He's not just a spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit power. Power from a spirit person who seeks to make you holy. And you're going to be less holy unless we are encountering Him and being filled in an ongoing way. But yes, unfortunately, because of some of the charismania, obviously the enemy is going to twist lies too. He doesn't want, think about the devil. He's pretty smart, right? If he's already lost you, if he's already lost your eternal soul, what's the next best thing he can do? He doesn't want you experiencing this third thing. He doesn't want you experiencing this fullness of the Holy Spirit and this ongoing filling. Because why? He wants to minimize your impact for the kingdom of God. He knows what he's doing. That's why there's so much division around this subject. That's why we're taking some time tonight to really um, zero in on, on what the Scripture says. Great question, Mario. Thank you. Um, can I talk for a couple more? Anybody else? My goodness. Quiet crowd tonight. Don't, don't accept so readily everything I say. Any, <laughs> any other questions? And, and, and we'll get ready to pray. Are you sure? Don't feel bad. A couple more minutes. Jeff needs three more minutes. He just texted me. Are we all good? I see a, I see a hand. All right, there he is. Pregúntame, mi hermano. Hey, how's it going? Can you be baptized more than once in, or should you be baptized more than once in water? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, let, me, let me ask this question. How many times should you take a bath? In your course of a life. Right? <laughs> Hopefully more than just one. So, do you have to be? No. Because I, like I said earlier, I don't believe water baptism is essential for salvation. Everybody cover that? Some people do. Some people believe, literally, if, if you were born again and you were on the way to the baptismal pool 
and you were to trip and fall and your spine would be severed and you would die, you wouldn't get into heaven because you didn't make it to the pool in time. Literally, I mean, that's what some people believe. They got to get you. They got to. They got to get you to the pool really fast, or you're not going to make it in. Equally as absurd as are some of our Pentecostal charismatic friends believe that if you're not baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues, you're not saved. There's actually a belief system out there that says that, which is also absurd as well. So to answer your question, I have been baptized a number of times um, at different events. One in the River Jordan because it was kind of cool to do so in Israel. Um, I'd have been baptized before. But there are certain moments in life when you know, God has done something so profound in you that you just want to do it again and say, Lord, you know, I've been a little bit astray, but I want to recommit and, and just affirm my commitment to you. I remember um, a few years back in church, a guy came up to me and who, who had been saved a long time and just a great guy, I thought, but he had you know, not been walking in a good place. And the Lord just moved upon him in the service. He said, listen, I, I really... Um, I need to be baptized in water. I said, well, good, brother. We can get that scheduled. He said, no, right now. Well, now? It was on a Wednesday night. Well, I said, well, so we um, left the church and walked across the street to the lake, and we just baptized him right then. But there was just this only thing I could this sense of urgency in him that wanted to solidify what God was doing in his life through the act of water baptism. So now I think if you happen to do it every week when we may need to Revisit the, um, like Ben talked about, the security of the believer, right? I think, you know, you're okay, but, if it, but, if, but it may mean something to you, especially if you've gotten away from the Lord and you're, and you're making your way back. Good, great question. Though. Good, good job, Gio. Yes, we can, we can baptize you if you need to tonight. Okay, um, I have a question. What happens when people ask you or tell you they're not baptized or they're not saved until the baptism. Like the, they think the water baptism is what baptizes them. How do you answer that when you have the three baptism? Is that just the got to fall into place? Because I hear that a lot. So clarify for me just a little bit there. If someone says, uh -huh. I'm not baptized or I'm not saved. Right. Until I get water baptized. Yes. Some people say that. Okay. And I know, I, you know, you, it's not about, that's not when necessarily yes. the Holy Spirit is coming down on you. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of people are very sincere in that belief. You know, they really, they really believe they got to do something. You know, they have to do something. And um, what I, very simple answer, but I would probably direct them to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it says, it is not by works you have been saved, but by faith. You know, it's by faith you've been saved, not by works. It is a gift of God that no man should boast. I would say your salvation is anchored, not in anything you've done, right? And ultimately being water baptized is something that you must do yourself or have done to you. You must permit to be done. Therefore, since it falls under the category of a work, something you do, it cannot be attached to salvation. So I would usually take them to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and say, your salvation is only dependent upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. He did it, not you. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to get saved. And if you were to hang baptism as a requirement or speak in tongues as a requirement, then all of a sudden you've gone into a works-based salvation rather than a grace-based salvation. And that is a slippery, oh, so slippery slope get away from that. That's why Martin Luther was delivered so amazingly when he was reading and he discovered in Romans, you know, the just shall live by faith. In that moment, Martin Luther, who, who, who was a Catholic priest, inaugurated and, and the Reformation commenced because God gave him this incredible revelation that all these works and all these indulgences and all these things that I'm doing, you know, are, are not earning me salvation. It's by faith alone. It's Jesus, sola fide, 
Only by faith. Jesus were good. Great question, though. Ah, uh, microphone right here. Get, I'm making sure John gets his exercise tonight. We just want to get it um, recorded, so. Uh, my experience uh, years ago, uh, I sought the baptism of the Holy Spirit many, many times, but I had got to the point in my life where I had to totally surrender for, for the baptism to happen to me. And I'm just wondering if that is something that has to happen to people where they totally surrender to God with all their being to, to be baptized and experience the gifts that come on you, or I know it did for me, but I'm, surely I hope they don't have to go through what I did. <laughs> no, man, that's, that's, so, you know, it's interesting to me that in these passages, it talked about these should be close to one another. There shouldn't be long gaps of time between being baptized into salvation being water baptized, and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Sadly, sometimes there's big gaps of time in between these things because we haven't been told. How are we to know unless somebody teaches us or somebody tells us that there is you know, something more? And as a result, we, we engage the Christian life with the absence of um, the power of God. Many of us have a testimony very much like that. You know you were born again. You know you were a Christian. You loved Jesus and, and you tried to live for Him, but so much of it was lived out of your own strength. And then, and then somehow along the way you got exposed to a teaching or somebody told you, somebody told you there's something more, told you about a, 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 a oasis in the desert of life, and you discovered it, you didn't know it was there, and you ran right toward it, and you jumped in the river, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just immersed you and filled you and just completely changed your life because you reached the end of yourself. And when you reach the end of yourself and you realize you, you can't do it, God says, good, now I've got you where, where I want you. you know? So that's why when we read earlier in the book of Philippians, working out your own salvation, right? It's, it's about cooperating and yielding to the Holy Spirit. We do a disservice to people if we only engage them at the first two baptisms. Because unfortunately, the first two baptisms keeps you in a very narcissistic Christianity. It's the third baptism that brings you into truly what Christianity is all about. The selfless life for Jesus. Does it make sense? If all you were was baptized into Jesus unto salvation and, you know, water baptism, you will live your whole Christian life thinking, oh, I am saved from hell. It's a third baptism that is uniquely designed to propel you into the great commission, the gospel ministry of being clothed in power and being His witnesses. So, and that's why I believe so much of in the church world today, we don't see this teaching. That's why so much of the church world today is what? Me-centered and not gospel-centered. Fully yielding to the work of the Spirit, realizing that's not about me, it's ultimately about Him, and that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. John understood this. I have to decrease so He can increase. The whole purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a decreasing in us and an increasing in Him, in us. Again, you're not trying to get the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get more of you. And the only way He can get more of you is you've got to let Him. You've got to surrender. Right? That's why going all the way back to Hebrews chapter 6 and these baptisms as part of the elementary teaching, many of us get a red card. Bam, you can't grow because you don't have the third one. Because it's the third one that's going to move you into the life that He's called you to live, the Spirit-filled life. Long and behold, that's the title of what we're talking about. One more question. Gail. Okay, if you 
honestly desire the third baptism? Yes. How do I get it? Oh, now there, that's a question like Peter got on the day of Pentecost. That's the best question of all. Ask. That's all you have to do. Yeah, ultimately ask God. Ask God. I always tell people to do this. Some people think we got to... When you read the book of Acts, you see people receiving this great gift. Sometimes it's for the laying on of hands. Sometimes it's just a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. 120 in the upper room. They're sitting down. Read the passage. Note their posture. They're not jumping around, rolling the floor, barking like dogs and cackling like chickens. They're actually sitting down. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Right? So I always tell people, if you're genuinely hungry... Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who desire for the Spirit to make you holy, those people are the ones that what? Shall be filled. So I always tell people, it doesn't have to be at church. It can be at church, but you can come, I mean, get beside your bed. Jesus, baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm not going to leave here, Lord, until I am baptized in your Holy Spirit. And then just begin to worship Him. And as we see in Scripture, some unique things begin to happen. As they begin to do that, as they begin to open themselves up, some spoke in tongues, some prophesied, some we don't know what they did, but there was something that happened. And I'm not going to try to define that something, because that's where we get into trouble, right? That's where we turn the Holy Spirit into an algorithm, which He is not. He is a person and a personality and deals with us Uniquely, If we ask, we shall receive, and we receive by faith that I have received this, and I begin to move forward. We don't look for a feeling, thank God, when we do get one, but feelings don't last anyway, so you don't want to count on them, right? I felt wonderful when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The next morning, I didn't feel anything. But something changed. What changed? i tell you what changed. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness increased. And it also says they were filled with the Spirit, and they preached the Word with boldness. So when righteousness increases and your boldness to proclaim the gospel increases, then guess what's happened? The Holy Spirit's moving and energizing you. I am not impressed if you speak in tongues. That does not impress me one iota. Should you? Yeah. Can you? I believe you can. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't impress me. It really is not a very authentic sign of the Holy Spirit. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, boldness in proclaiming the gospel, sharing your faith and, and your testimony. Let's do one more. Margo, and then we'll pray in. Actually, yeah, let's get you for the mic so we can okay. just so we can record it so helpful for others. Yes, mine was related to hers. I was just going to say that we've been reading in Acts that um, uh, Paul laid hands on people, and yes. then John and Peter were called to go and lay hands. So yes. I was just going to ask if it's necessary for someone to lay hands on you in order to experience this baptism, or if you can do it yourself. So you just answered that. Yeah, that yeah. Question. So yeah, I think yeah. to say it's necessary. No. That's right. I think sometimes it helps. You know, sometimes it helps for people to pray for you. I think it facilitates the body ministry and the body of Christ. It's just healthy. I reminded the story of Jesus when he called Lazarus out. He instructed the people around him, right? He already caused him to rise from the dead. And he said, go unbind him and set him free. In other words, he actually used other people to help get the grave clothes off of him. So do you have to? Absolutely not. I believe some of the most authentic baptisms in the Holy Spirit I've ever heard has been people sharing that's been by their bed at home. Jeff Lyle, amazing testimony. All by himself, sitting at his desk, just praying, God came upon him mightily. And, and I think there's something also, if you're asking and not getting anything, wait. Wait. If you don't get it, keep waiting, keep person. Ten days they pray in the upper room. Ten days. Why? Something about God loves our determination because determination authenticates hunger 
and desire. When we're determined, that tells you how hungry we are. And God likes to see his kids hungry.